It's time for your weekly trip inside the ropes and behind the scenes of the Australian golf industry. Welcome to another episode of the Australian Golf Show with Tiffany Cherry and Mark Allen. Great to have you join us on the show and it's great to be joined again by Martin Blake, our Golf Australia Media Manager and an Australian golf writer, Dane Heverin. Thanks to have you both. Hello, Tiff. We're sending our condolences and a, a big hug to our regular co-host, Mark Allen, who's dealing with a family bereavement. So we're thinking of you, Marco, and sending our best to you and your family and friends and uh, looking forward to having you back next week. It's a big week in golf for the ladies, obviously. On the top tour, we've got one of the five majors in the US Open at Pine Needles. The and big one, really. We've got five Australians, which is fantastic in the field. It's the big one, Tiff and Dane, and, and welcome uh you know, $10 million US prize money. Last year, it was 5.5. So, well done to the USGA for, for bringing it up. I mean, the, the second prize money this year is bigger than the first prize money last year. So, the winner is going to get, I believe, $1.8 million, Which is over $2 million of ours. It's uh, about the statement, really, isn't it? What What is – yes, of course, the winner is going to take that home. So, one person gets the benefit. But then it trickles down, of course, to yeah. the rest of the players in the field. But the statement of what that is actually saying to the rest of the golf community. That it's equal with everything. It's about equality. So, five Australians in the field. Minji Lee is red hot. She did drop out of the uh, match play, LPGA match play event last week after the round-robin phase. But prior to that, she'd She'd won. I mean, she'd she'd be the the red hot chance, Dane. I'd say, and, and obviously Hannah Green, Sarah Kemp uh, are there as well as as uh, Grace Kim and Gabby Ruffles, who we'll talk to later. Yeah, Minji is our best hope. She's been playing fantastic golf. Obviously, only winning a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, back to the prize money. Is it? Well, how big is it for the likes of Grace Kim and Gabby Ruffles that you know there are big dollars on offer here? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the US Women's Open, it's at Pine Needles in North Carolina, which is the venue for Kari Webb's, I'm going to say, possibly her greatest day and her greatest week. She won the US Women's Open there in 2001, so 21 years ago. It was the second in a row for her, and she'd won at that point four of the last seven majors. And she won by eight. Unbelievable. In the biggest event in the world, she won by eight. And she was also the only player to go under par yeah. that week. Like she, I've seen some video of it. We, we did a story on it on, on the uh, Golf Australia website a couple of years ago. I think it's, you know, it's probably her greatest, greatest week. I mean, she just made everything and she made like monster putts on the last two holes as well just to finish it off. And Annika Sorenstam, just to give you the background, Annika Sorenstam had emerged as a superstar of the sport by then. And in the early part of that year, she'd actually won three tournaments and Coming into the US Open, she was really the favourite and Kari just went whack. You you think about also the legacy that Kari has left, not just in being our greatest golfer, but what has she done for the five women in that field? Each and every one of them she's had contact with, she's had some form of mentoring with, and she's really been able to continue to evolve women's golf in Australia to that next level. Yeah, well, the majority of those five have been Kari Webb scholarship holders as well. And so they've already got that relationship with her and you'd think they'd have to be getting some inside info on how to best play Pine Needles from Kari this week. Well, we'll talk to Gabby Ruffles a little bit later in the show and get her view on how the course is playing and uh, and just how she's going. And She's uh, recently turned pro. But what about, we've got uh, 11 Australians in the field coming up for the Open 
in July. Now, it's not our best, which is actually Pretty Dane. impressive. <laughs> Tony Wiebeck found this out for us. 23 in 2006 is the record. Which is, That's outrageous. So this is obviously just under half of that. But still, 11 is incredible. And it was at, we had two added over the weekend. Yeah, Anthony Quayle and Brad Kennedy got through the Mizuno Open in, in Japan. They finished in the top three. So so they've jumped in there. And, Dane, there's there's obviously the Vic Open, the two who came through the Vic Open. Well, there were three came from the Vic Open. One was a Kiwi. Uh, so Matty Griffin and Dimi Papadados came through. And then you've got the obvious, the regulars. Yeah, we've got the regular PGA Tour players, you know, Cam Smith, Mark Leishman, Minwoo Lee, Lucas Herbert, Adam Scott. But then we've also got Jason Scrivener, who's a DP World Tour player, and Jed Morgan, obviously from winning the PGA Tour of Australasia Order of Merit. Let's uh, just go back a bit. Anthony Quayle had an opportunity to win, had four-stroke lead heading into the final day and, uh, and lost on the second playoff hole. Yeah, obviously a real bittersweet one for him because he hasn't won over in Japan yet and you could see the disappointment on his face and he yeah, he went down in a playoff on the first hole to Scott Vincent of Zimbabwe but the disappointment of losing offset a bit by the fact you're going to get to go play the Open at St Andrews but you know you could tell Anthony was really upset that he hadn't got that win yet. Cam Davis tied seventh in the Charles Schwab Challenge was a Good result for Cam, who's really continuing uh, to emerge. And Scotty Scheffler almost won again, Tiff. Uh, talk about when he got to number one in the world, everyone was like, who is this guy? And now everyone's like, how good is this guy? I mean, he's he, he's has he won five times this year or four times? That would have been five. Yeah. No, he was beaten by Sam Burns, who knocked a long putt in, in, a, in a playoff, actually. So he was very close to... To winning again, I, I don't know what he's um, how he's he's got this good so quickly, but man, is he good? Did you see Sam Burns's prize for winning that tournament? So it was some uh, it was a fancy and uh, you know sort of vintage car, was it not? Yeah, it was a 1979 Firebird. Oh, <laughs> pretty impressive. What, an, what color? It was blue. Pretty impressive. What what about Steve Alka winning again on the Champions Tour, Dane? Uh, this guy, uh, I think Marco is very keen for us to get him on. As a Kiwi who, uh, you know, completed his regular career, turned 50 last year, went on the Seniors Tour, qualified for an event and won straight away. He's now won three times inside a year. He's dominating the, the Champions Tour. So uh, that that's a pretty amazing story. Steve Alka of a guy who's just, uh, you know, He's persisted and he's found something at 50 years of age. I wonder if he's read uh, Nick O'Hearn's latest book, How to Play Your Best Golf. Some great tips in that and we'll be talking to Nick coming up very shortly. You, you get Looking out. Looking forward to you, that. You're playing a lot of golf, Blakey, every week. You come in on Monday. I do and work, you got you, know? a, you got a bit of a spring in your step most weekends. So how do you play your best golf? Um, how do I play my best golf? Well, just get out of my own way. So don't try not to think about it too much and try not to get angry with myself, which is a, a bad habit of all, probably a lot of amateur golfers, you know, try to just keep playing, you know. Have you thrown a club ever? I threw one, uh, a brand new wedge once at a course outside Melbourne, which I meant to just sort of throw along the ground. And I threw it so hard that it tipped over and over and over and then, I was looking at this lake that it was heading for and it went into the lake. <laughs> and it was a brand new tailor-made wedge uh, worth quite a bit of money. Uh, so I had to get my dax off <laughs> and get in the lake because it was sticking up out of the water. And I thought, that's it, I'm never throwing one again. But I, I'd have to say, Dane, that I probably have thrown one somewhere again, maybe at Barn Boogle I threw it. Yeah, so 
I'm not generally a club thrower. It doesn't do you any any good, Dane. Are you a th- club thrower? Nah, I managed to sort of keep it in check. I'm pretty used to hitting bad shots, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Nick Ahern will probably talk us through all this later, Tiff, because he is the guru of mind games in golf and how to think, isn't he? Yeah, he definitely is. And I, I sat with him uh, commentating one of the TPS events and just how he takes you into the mind um, or, or, you know, understanding what potentially, because you can't get, obviously get into the mind of, of, a, of another person, but potentially what they're thinking about and how we can see that transpire into their golf game. Yeah, I mean, he, he's outstanding at it. And he's obviously written two books now and he does a lot of uh, working with corporates and even high-level amateur players and, and young pros as well because, you know, people recognise that he got the absolute best out of himself as a player, incredibly so. I mean, he had an excellent career. Um, I heard him talking about when he first, when he was in his early 20s and he, he had turned pro. He was four handicapped when he turned pro, which is unheard of nowadays. Mm. You'd need to be like plus two or three or four to, to turn pro. He was a four handicap player when he turned pro. Anyway, he went down when he was about 22, he was struggling, went and saw a, a coach in Perth. And the guy looked at him, swing a few shots, and he said, uh, you're a pro. He came from a baseball background, I believe. Yeah, he did. He was an excellent baseballer and tennis player, I think, as well. You yeah. Know, so he, he, you know, he has a lot of talent, Nick. Don't don't get me wrong, but he was not a a great young golfer. Um, but he found a way. Can you have you got your your best story, your best memory of Nick Ahern playing? I would say holing out of the bunker to win the uh, Australian PGA up at Coolum. He hadn't won anything for quite a few years. He was never a prolific winner. Um, I think he only. He won two events on the Australasian Tour in all those years, but he did knock one in out of the bunker to win. Yeah, I would say take your pick of the two times he beat Tiger Woods. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and how do you choose between them? Yeah. That, that's a nice one to have on the CV. Oh. That, that is – well, it's unheard of for a start. No one's beaten Tiger twice in match play, so. And especially with him writing books and doing coaching, you're going to stop and listen to what he has to say. Well, you just write your ticket, don't you? The only man to have beaten Tiger Woods twice in match play. Well, we've got Nick Ahern – up on the show very shortly, and we'll be talking about that and we'll be talking about his latest book. So stay tuned. It's time now to welcome our cherry pick guest for the week. He's a great friend of golf. He's been, uh, well, top 16 in, in the world and he's won six professional titles. The only man, as we've said already, to beat Tiger Woods twice in match play, which is a pretty phenomenal record to put next to your name. And in his spare time, he writes books and his latest is play, how to play your best golf nick ahern it's great to have you join us on the show great to be cherry picked thanks <laughs> Tiff. how to play your best golf isn't that the secret of what we all want to know what is your top tip straight off the bat the hard question what is my top tip um i guess probably the most uh, common question i get asked is how can i be more consistent that's a, that's a big part about everyone's game out there. They all want to know, how can I be more consistent? And it really comes down to, I think, having – my next question to them is, well, do you have a pre-shot routine? And a lot of people don't. So that would be you know a big part of the game, I think, if they can uh, go through the same process every time they're on the golf course before every shot. Uh, that's a big part of uh, how you can be more consistent. So what was your pre-shot routine? What was mine? Oh, well, uh, you know, it involved a, a system, so to speak. I used to divide it up into two areas, a decision-making phase and an execution phase. The, the decision-making phase is where you do all your thinking, basically, be, before you get to the ball. So 
you take in, for example, if you had a shot uh, when you're in the fairway and you've got 150 metres, the pin's on the left, the wind's coming out the right, you don't want to be long, you don't want to be short, all this sort of stuff, all these factors, how are you hitting it, do I want to hit a fade, a draw, is it uphill, downhill, is it hot, cold, there's a variety of factors to take in. Bryson DeChambeau, he probably talks about the, you know, rotational axis of the earth, those sorts of things. <laughs> Other players like Dustin Johnson may just go, well, I want to hit a fade. <laughs> Very simple. So that's the area where you want to do all your thinking. And then once you've made your decision about what you want to hit or what sort of shot you want to play, then you move into what I call the execution phase, which is basically a process where you walk into the ball, go through the same physical motions, do the same thing every single time and have the same sort of thoughts as well. You know, a lot about target and visual things and what do I want to feel in my golf swing, basically? Just on that point, Nick, I read and heard some stuff from you recently where you said that you think too many people get to their ball and they straight away get the laser finder out, the GPS, to see how far it is to the pin. They don't look at the lie. And you suggest that they look at the lie first because mm. you think it's more important than even the distance. To the well, uh, there's a chapter in the book, funnily enough, called The Lie Determines Everything. Yeah. And it really does. It dictates what you, tank, what you can do with a golf ball. Even when you're in the fairway, a lot of people don't have a real close look at it because sometimes it's sitting down, it might be sitting up, might be in a divot. Obviously, that's a pretty obvious one. Uphill, downhill, et cetera, et cetera. There was a young pro I worked with in the US, a guy called Austin Truslow, and I talk about him in the book. And Phenomenal ball striker, just amazing. And one of the things I always said to him, Austin, every time you get to the ball, you're just grabbing that laser out. Let's, let's take a look at what the lie is first. And I got him to play without yardages for a while, which is a very you know, a unique concept to a lot of pros out there. They just love to pull the laser out first, and, and amateurs for that matter as well. And if you can get to your ball and think, okay, what is the lie allowing me to do with this shot? What, what does it look like I want to play? What sort of club feels right? Don't think in terms of numbers. Think in terms of clubs and shots. I think you just become a much better golfer, especially in windy and tough conditions, cold, hot, you name it. I'm representing sort of the 86% of golfers out there who are alternate golfers or uh, they're ball hitters, although I do go and play. But I'm wanting to understand if my ball is down, maybe in a divot, and I've I've got to pull out a a loft club, one with a bit of a wedge that's going to give me some height to get it out of there, but I also want some distance. How am I going to be able to do that? What what club do Mm. I select? Well, again, that comes down to what type of divot you're in. Are you in the? Are you in a deep, a shallow divot? Are you in the front, the back, the middle? There's all these little variations that you've got to take into consideration. Sometimes it's just a matter of taking your medicine and think, well, I can't do much with this. I'll just wedge it out and then play my next one and hopefully get that up and down. So it all depends on the situation, and that's the beauty of golf. It's a situational game. Every time you step onto the golf course, you know, one of my favorite things that I like to talk about is it's a continual problem-solving activity. Every time you step out there, it changes and mm. you have to figure out, okay, how does this, how do I play today in the way that's going to get me the best score possible? And out of a divot like that, well, yeah, you haven't got an ideal lie. So factor that in. Depending on your skill level, if you're a pro, you're probably going to be able to get no, on I'm the not green. A pro. <laughs> if you're not a pro, well, you think, well, how do I take double bogey out of play and just make bogey from here? Bogey's a great score sometimes. Yeah. You also talk in the book about that you can wipe six shots off your score just through being a better thinker. What else can people do besides just assessing the lie? Oh, there's a variety. Well, six shots would be for, say, an 18 handicapper, for starters. You know, a six handicapper was wiping six shots off straight away through thinking better. That might be a bit of a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a couple of shots, I think, for the six handicapper. But um, 
you know, the lie is one thing. I think, as I was talking about before, having a consistent pre-shot routine. For example, when I stand behind the ball, and, and if you time most players, if you watch them on television, as, as they take their first step into the ball to when they hit the ball, no matter whether they've got a driver, a wedge, a seven iron, whatever it is, that time will be exactly the same. For me, it's 11 seconds. That doesn't change. Tiger Woods, he'd be the same. Whether he's doing it on a Sunday on the 72nd hole or Thursday on the 14th hole, there's no difference. So having that consistent pre-shot routine is a real key. And then it's sort of uh, strategizing your way around the golf course. Okay, this is a left to right hole, so I don't really want to be on the inside of the dog leg here. I want to be up the left side. And and more so playing to your strengths, working on your short game especially, I think is a big part of it. Mm. Most of our strokes are taken from wedge distance and in. I spoke about that in my first book. Almost two-thirds of your strokes when you add your score up are from wedge distance and in. So when you do get a chance to practice and work on your game, short game is so important. One, You touched on it a little bit there. So one of the key components of golf is the time that it takes, and especially when you go to a public golf course and you can get held up behind groups where they, they don't understand perhaps that one of the nuances of golf is that you've got to keep moving, otherwise you're going to back up and there's going to be a log jam right behind you. There's so many new golfers to the game. What advice do you give them to make sure that, they're not standing there mm. taking way too long and maybe not enjoying the game themselves and also <laughs> making it a, a not enjoyable um, experience for those behind us. My, and I often bring my dad into the, into the conversation because he's the one that I was, which inspired me. He would say, fast game's a good game, Tiff. Mm-hmm. Take your shot and move on. I completely agree. Uh, save all your technical thoughts for the driving range. That's a really important part about the game, When, especially as a beginner, what you find, and, and golfers that aren't real you know, regular golfers, they're out on the course and they're probably taking three or four practice swings. They're over the ball, looking up at the target, going, what do I do? What am I, what, where should my grip be? How should I be standing? All that stuff saved for the driving range. The reason golf is such a hard sport, from a mental perspective and how to learn the game is because the ball is stationary. And when the ball's stationary, you have all this time in the world to think about things. In every other sport, the ball's moving. Football, baseball, soccer, basketball, you name it. And you're reacting to the targets. So I always say to people, look, if you're starting out or if you're, you know, the average sort of golfer plays once a month, once a week, have one practice swing, that's enough. Just get a feeling of what you want to do in the swing. And then when you get over the ball, take one or two looks at the target, get comfortable, And as you take your last look to the target and you bring your eyes back to the ball, start your swing straight away. Don't pause. Same with putting, same with chipping, all with the full swing. Don't pause because that's helping you to react to the target. The longer you stand and look at the ball, that's when the thoughts come in and the bad stuff. And, And most bad shots in golf are because all of a sudden you start thinking about the wrong things. Yeah, I think I heard you say recently that Rory McElroy, you thought that when he was hitting his wedges, even though he's one of the great drivers of the ball, but he's... Probably not a great wedge player, you know, not to the level of his driving in any way. And you said that he, you thought that he was looking too much, looking up too many times. I've noticed that in his game. Um, and, and again, it's just something that it's an opinion. It, it may or may not be true. He, he may love doing what he's doing. But Rory, I watch him. And again, I, I guess I could talk a bit about in the book. Um, I mentioned play to your personality. That's a yeah. real key part about the game. And Rory, when you watch him in full flight and when he's going, he's got that bounce in his step. He is a very athletic golfer and he has that rhythm. It's almost like watching, I don't know, like a Barishnikov or someone like that. It's just incredible to watch. And he, when he plays his best golf, I think he doesn't take too long over the ball. Maybe he takes a couple of extra looks too many. And when I can sort of see him struggling a bit, his routine may change a bit. 
And I think if he just got over the ball, took one, maybe two looks, and then just went, I think he'd be amazing with the shorter clubs. Now, this book, Play Your Best Golf, which is available through Hardy Grant in all good bookstores, by the way, um, it's your second one. But what's brought you to this stage? Because it, it's really a reflection of what you're doing with your, your golfing life now, isn't it? You've moved to Melbourne. You're helping a lot of corporates, are you? And a, and a few pros, maybe some of the high-performance young players around. Who are you, who are you helping? And you, you do a lot of playing lessons, don't you? And you, you're kind of mentoring a lot, a lot of people, aren't you, with this kind of stuff? Yeah, playing lessons mostly and the odd corporate event, uh, I do something called Tour Pro Experiences. I take people out from a corporate perspective and make them feel like Tour Pros for a day, which is a lot of fun. But it all sort of started uh, about six years ago when I stopped playing full-time. I I wrote my first book, Tour Mentality, by accident. That one came about because a friend of mine wanted to know more about the mental game, so I wrote him some notes and all of a sudden I had a bit of a book on my hand. I thought, that's pretty cool. I might see how that goes. And then ever since I stopped playing, I've been helping golfers from tour pros to 27 handicappers, basically. So, you know, I um, this book is a culmination of all those things I think I've taught people. I've always known these things, but I've never really, you know, sat down and wrote about them. And then when lockdown hit a couple of years ago, I thought, well, now's the chance to mm. put pen to paper and maybe do a follow-up to tour mentality. I was going to call it a strategy, but that was a very unsexy name. So <laughs> came up with uh, how, to, how to play your best golf because that's what the book is all about. Everyone's different. Everyone has their own swing, putting stroke, you name it. I'm not telling people how to swing the golf club or, or putt or anything like that. It's more about how do you find what works for you, and that's the real key in golf. Because it just strikes me that you are you you fit the genre of the, the coach, the sporting coach, in the sense that you were a, a hardworking and very extremely good player. Uh, but you extracted the absolute – I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone extract <laughs> more out of themselves than what you got out of uh, your God-given gifts. So you, you do fit that, that sort of stereotype of the, the coach. I'm wondering whether you've ever thought about actually going and coaching. Well, I started out as a teaching pro when I yeah. – you know, first term pro. I turned pro when I was off a of four handicap, so I did a traineeship and I wasn't good enough to play. I always wanted to play, but I just wasn't good enough. So my first two or three years as a pro was as a teaching pro, just – working at a public golf course in Perth. So it's back to the future. So in a way, I've come full circle. Yeah, I sort of went out and played uh, for 20 years and saw the highs and lows of the game, saw every aspect of it from trying to break 80 to playing President's Cups and winning tournaments, which is a lot of fun. So I guess I come at it from a different perspective, and that's why I love helping currently young tour pros and mentoring those sorts Mm. of players. And then for the average golfer, I find – you know, one of my first clients when I came back to Melbourne, he was a 16 handicapper. He said, Nick, I don't practice. Uh, I'm just, you know, 60 years old and I want to get down to single figures. I said, no problem, we can do that. And sure enough, now he's playing off eight. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's doable. You just need to know how to work on the right things. And that's where my expertise and experience comes in. Does he practice now? No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> I love it. Eight shots. Oh, that's amazing. Was the inspiration for the book, did that come at all from, were you a big reader of golf books when you were younger or during your playing days? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a learner. I love to read and learn and not just golf. I, I love reading about all sports, psychology, you name it. Now, I don't have a degree or anything like that and I might have a degree in life, so to speak, when it comes to the mental game of golf. But, um, you know, I'm not espousing to be a sports psychologist or anything like that. I just know how to get the most out of my ability, for instance, when I played. And I figured out a system and a, and a way to extract everything out of what I had. And now it's more a case of, okay, how do I adapt that to other people and, and share that sort of knowledge? And 
but I love reading about you know high performing people like you know Agassi's book was one of my favorites. Mm. Love Sampras. Faldo was an interesting book. Seve, all those. You know, sports people are really my genre, so to speak. I love reading about them and how they went about it. And it's interesting how golf relates to so many other sports. You know, I was talking to a football team recently about the mental aspect of their of their team environment and all that and how golf and, and football relate so much. It's it's fascinating. Mm. Obviously, physically, it's pretty similar, right? So <laughs> I'm kidding. But yeah. um, no, it's uh, the team aspect and the individuals, the, the unique part, but it does correlate. You touch so much on the mental aspect and one of the key components is harnessing the power of the mindset. Take us into the mind as much as you can of what you've learnt playing alongside and beating Tiger Woods because we know, apart from yourself, as being one of the great strategists, he is as well. Take us into Tiger's mindset. I wouldn't have a clue what he thinks about it. If I'd have known that, I probably wouldn't have won about 14 <laughs> majors in those 15, right? 15 majors myself. What have you learnt from him? Oh, well, I, I saw firsthand, I guess, in a way, how we went about his daily activities because I lived in the same community in the US as he did, a place called Isleworth Golf Club, and until he hit the fire hydrant and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yes. You know, went on from there. But not only is he the most physically talented player I've ever seen, but he's probably the most um, hardworking as well. Uh, he was you know, a dawn till dust kind of guy, but it wasn't all at the golf course. He went to the gym and did things like that, but mostly on the range and on the golf course. It was phenomenal to see how hard he worked and his ability to, I guess, bring in ideas and tap into information that he go, mm, maybe that'll work, maybe that won't. And, you know, that's what I think all best players in all sports are able to do. They, they're able to see what what works, what doesn't, and then go, right, does that fit my game? No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. And maybe that's why he's changed coaches so many over the years, uh, so many times over the years. But probably the number one thing that separates him from everyone else is his ability to stay in the moment mm. when the pressure comes. That putty hold at Ter- Torrey Pines on the 18th at the US Open yeah. was one of the most amazing displays of mental fortitude I've ever seen. But he just made it look as though it was a Thursday afternoon and he – you know, his thought over that part was, well, I'm just going to put the best stroke on it I possibly can. And if it goes in, great. If it doesn't, well, I gave it my all. And that's the key to golf. Ironically, uh, when, when you beat him, I think, in the 2005 match play, I think he had a four-footer to beat you in regulation, maybe 207. Uh, he had a four-footer to beat you. He never misses those parts. And I read that you didn't watch it. Uh, because you had this thing where you were saying you're not going to try try not to watch him too much. That well, that was, was part of your, part that of your strategy. <laughs> yeah, don't watch it. Don't get caught up in the the, the hype. Anyway, he missed that part, which you know he doesn't do. So, yeah, later on he blamed a pitch mark. He said, oh, "I I didn't. I was so consumed with the lie, I didn't see the pitch mark." And I thought, "Well, hang on. I mean, if he was so consumed, he would have seen it." You know, I put it down to the fact. Well, hang on, he might be able to beat Nico. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, he saw you coming, and he went, "Oh no." <laughs> Take us into – so that mindset set, that is such a key because so much of golf is played above the shoulders. There's, there are so many times when you get out there and you're like, oh, I can't hit this or I see the water, I can't get over it or the bunker or whatever it might be. What, how do you hone your mind to be in that moment to make sure that you can hit your best shot? I had that happen just over the weekend. I had a round of golf um, where I had absolutely no clue where the ball was going. And the beauty of that is I always say to myself, okay, well, that means you know, I'm struggling with my game. What's the one thing I can control right now? And I always bring it back to that pre-shot routine. 
you have about 20 to 30 seconds before you hit a golf shot. Now, can you control that time to the best of your ability? And if you can bring your mind back into that moment, I always say to myself, what do I have to do right now? Like, right, I have a target. I have a seven iron in my hand. I have 140 meters. I want to hit it to the left. If you think about it in those terms, you, you get caught up in the process of it. When you're not playing well, you're always thinking about result. You're going, oh, gosh, I don't want to hit it right. I'm playing so bad. I've just double bogeyed the last hole, etc." If you can bring your mind back to what do I have to do right now, that's the, that's the trick to playing this game. Now, it takes a lot of practice, obviously, but it's very doable if you can just continue to reinforce those, uh, that, that process, so to speak. So say you've hit your tee shot and you walk into your second shot, when do you switch on? You know, when do you mm. start that process? That's a good point. Yeah, I use my glove in that regard. So after I've hit a shot, I sort of do a brief analysis. It might be 10 seconds or something. Oh, was that any good? Was that no good? Blah, blah, blah. Take my glove off. That's my moment to switch off and chat to my caddy, my playing partners. These days I don't have a caddy, obviously, but just whoever I'm playing with. And then usually it's about 10 to 20 yards before the ball. Then I'll start to just sort of narrow the focus a little and I'll bring the glove out, pop the glove back on and go, right, okay, it's game time. And that's that 30 to 40 second period where you can control that time. You're going to go, okay, what sort of a shot do I want to hit here? That's that decision-making part of the pre-shot routine I was talking about. Once you've made that decision, then you go from the thinking mode to the execution mode. And that's when you kind of go a bit on autopilot, so to speak, but Switching off between shots is so important, but it's actually one of the hardest skills to learn. Same as cricket, I guess, Dane. Yeah, very similar. No, no point, you know, mulling over stuff while the bowler's walking mm. back to his mark. Nick, uh, one thing that I've heard you say that I found interesting was that you thought that uh, golf should be fun, even for pros. You you like them to have fun, and you you don't really want them to treat it as a job, even though it is. How, how does that work? <laughs> How do they do that? Well, that, that was just my opinion uh, because I think towards the end of my career it became more of a job than it was enjoyable. Right. And, and in a way I found the love for the game again because I don't do it for a living so much anymore, yeah. which is great. But I knew through my peak years when I was playing well, I never considered it a job. I sort of went out there with the purpose of, okay, these are the things I've got to do, but I love this game and I'm not playing it for the money or anything like that. I was playing it to win titles. Unfortunately, I didn't win too many. But So it was a um, privilege. Yeah, in a way, in a way. I mean, and that's the thing on PGA Tour, for instance, when the people, when you're playing in the US or wherever you are playing, you get sport rotten on those tours and it's very easy to get used to it. So you have to give yourself a bit of a, a quiet slap every now to go, hang on, you've got to appreciate this because all of a sudden you turn up to your locker and there's golf balls and there's clubs and there's gifts and things like this. I mean, yeah, if you start expecting that stuff, you can get caught up. Mm. You know, go down a rabbit hole you don't want to go down to, basically. <laughs> I want to get into your mind on the state of play of Australian golf. Let's let's start with the women. We've obviously got the US Open this weekend. How do you see um, ahead of the US Open with the five Australian contingent and, and just women in general playing golf in Australia? How do you see that tra- that trajectory? Oh, it's getting stronger and stronger. I mean, my home club in Perth, uh, Mount Lawley, has some amazing talent in Hannah Green, obviously, and Kirsten Rudgerley. Who won the Athena recently? That yep. was that was great to see. She's she's going to be an outstanding young player. Minji Lee just winning the you know the other week. That was incredible. We're we're in a great space. Um, obviously, Grace Kim just won on the uh, Epsom Tour as well. So Aussie golf for the female side is in a really good spot right now, and and the, and the depth and seeing those players up there playing well is just going to inspire the next generation, which is which is awesome. Gabby Ruffles is another obviously going to be playing the US Open this week, I believe. We're so. chatting with her. Oh, right. Shortly on the show. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah, no, she's uh, obviously, you know, her brother Ryan was the was the superstar. And, 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 and there's the tale right there of two two different paths. You know, uh, Ryan was the 
next big thing and turn pro young and unfortunately hasn't quite worked out for him. I'm sure it still can because he still is very young. And then Gabby came to the game late and, and she's sort of leading the way now, which is great to see. And what about the men? Well, uh, hard to go past, you know, Cam Smith at the moment, isn't he playing some Number stunning three golf? In the world. And it shows you what an amazing, you know, wedge game and short game can do that. It was it was fascinating to watch him at the PGA recently. I mean, putting is his strength and that was probably his weakest mm. part of his game. And if he'd have putted, well, he probably would have won, I would imagine. So, But I just love his attitude on the golf course. It's almost a I don't care type, you know, attitude out there. Obviously, he does. But he's having fun. He's having fun. No, he's exactly right. And you look at players like Leash and, you know, Adam Scott and those guys. Uh, Jason Day, it's good to see him resurging back as well. But again, we have a lot of talent. You know, the high-performance programs here in Australia do a great job. Um, you know, many young players coming through that you're going to see some very big names shortly. And uh, we're, we're in a really good space. And I can't wait for the Aussie Tour coming up too because I think the schedule is just going to get bigger, bigger and better each year. And, and golf's kind of back, which is awesome. It is back. Who's your tip for the US Open, for the women? For the ladies? You know, um, ooh, that's a very good question. Nellie Corder's back, obviously, playing. So, But I'm, I'm not sure she's got the miles under the legs after after what's been happening. But uh, I'd love to see someone like uh, Alexi Thompson, who's, who's you know, had some mental demons, so to speak, with the majors. But I've got to go Aussie and go Hannah. I think Hannah's uh, playing some great golf. And I can see her game is rock, rock solid and steady. And as a former Mount Lawley member, but I've got to... The Mount Lawley stuff comes out. <laughs> She's a superstar, yeah. Hannah Green. Thank you so much. So are you, Nick. It's been a pleasure always talking to you. All the best with your latest book, How to Play Your Best Golf at Every Great Bookstore. And uh, and perhaps pick up the phone and if you need a golf lesson, give Nick Ahern a call. Coming up next, we've got all the news from Around the Traps with Martin and Dane. Well, it's time now for the news from around Australia and around the world. And this is something that caught my attention, Dane. We've got a 12-year-old who's already been signed to Puma and has won a staggering number of junior tournaments. Yeah, this is absolutely amazing. Zevi Perez, who's from Georgia over in America, has signed a deal with Cobra and Puma Golf that he'll wear Puma stuff while he's playing and you know use Cobra clubs. And he's won more than 250 tournaments so far. He's 12. How, how long has he been playing? He started playing tournaments when he was three. So he's a tiger. He's got a, it's, a, it's another tiger. Yeah, playing in tournaments he was too young to play in, but they let him in at three and he just started winning and hasn't stopped. And he's already got this, the star name, Zevi Paris. I know, that's, that's a winner, isn't it? You can already see it up in lights. Absolutely. I presume the amateur status, the changes to amateur status, allow some of these things to happen. But uh, it doesn't really say whether there's any money changes hands. And, you know, the RNA and the USGA did, did change the amateur, amateur status rules about a year ago where they can pick up a little bit of prize money. You know, Kirsten Rudgley, when she won the Athena, I think when she won, she wasn't allowed to take the money for the tournament because yep. it was five grand or something but she won did she win the skills contest yes um, yeah and she was able she to, was allowed yeah, to pick yeah. that up so there there's been a loosening of that but this one is out there could he be yeah. the next generation i mean every sort of generation or two there's a there's a, a tiger or, or who you know a gary player whoever it might be could this kid be the next one i mean that's phenomenal well clearly some powerful people think so because this is his fourth endorsement deal this is just made news because it's actually for attire and clubs. It's yeah, probably not even in high school yet. Unbelievable. Michelle Wee was a bit like that. Mm. She signed very young with Nike, and incidentally, she's she's retiring from professional golf. Uh, that was announced during the week. Big news as well, Peter O'Malley. 
Peter O'Malley was uh, inducted, I suppose is the word, as a life member of the PGA of Australia last week, affectionately known as POM. Uh, it's, you know, absolutely well-deserved. I mean, a, a great playing career, won the 1992 Scottish Open. That was the greatest uh, sort of hour or two of, of his playing life, I suppose. He, he, he played the final holes in seven under par. Eagle, birdie, 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 eagle to win. So he won three times in Europe. He won five times on our tour. Uh, he was inside the top ten twice at the Open Championship. He was also director of the PGA of Australia for eight years, including two as chair. Mm. And uh, he was going to – he did an apprenticeship as a greenkeeper when he was a young man at Bathurst in New South Wales, and that was the backup plan, and he never had to use it. Great to see. What else have you got, Dane? Um, so speaking of Kirsten Rudgley just before, the Queen's Circuit Cup mm. wrapped up last Friday in Singapore, and you know, our Aussie team came in seventh, but they um, they definitely saved their best for last. Is that I was speaking to Kirsten and Kelsey and Caitlin throughout the week, and they really struggled with the heat and humidity in Singapore, as you can imagine. And um, But in the last round, they shot the best team score of the day. Kirsten shot five under, which was the best individual score of the day. And, you know, they showed their class as they grew into it. We heard from Nick Ahern just how good he thinks Kirsten Rudgley is going to be. Yeah, well, she's, she's a star. She's got US Amateur coming up as well, and... I was chatting to her about that. She thinks she won't have to qualify because her ranking's so good. She's inside the top 25 in the world at the moment. And Kelsey Bennett's heading over there as well, but mm. trying to qualify. Definitely a star in the making. Uh, we've, we've got some great young players at the moment. There's oh. no doubt about it on both the men's and women's sides. Uh, you know, there's a huge amount of talent coming through. And at the pro level, it feels like, uh, you know, the Adam Scotts and Jason Days and the Allenbys and Applebys and Ogilvies, you know, that era has kind of moved on, even though Adam Scott's still playing quite nicely and Jason Day's showing a few signs, but it's really now, it's Cam the Smith, generation. it's Lucas Herbert, you know, both in their 20s. Min uh, Minwoo Lee coming through and then, then uh, Min uh, Ji and, and Hannah. Hannah both in their mid-20s on the other side. So Now there's some news, uh, Arundel Hills, that the, this has been closed and a number, Queensland, yeah, yeah, and a number of the golfers can't get, or the golfers can't get their equipment out. Well, the the private owner of the facility, because I think it's a you know it's a residential stroke golf course, and they've been uh, taken over by administrator. Um, so they've straight away the administrators closed the the golf course. And I read the other day that some of the some of the members have got their clubs locked up there and they can't get in. But I'm I'm sure they'll eventually get in. They just have to negotiate with very skillfully with the uh, the administrator, Dane. But not not a great. Uh, situation there? No, certainly not great. Maybe they can go and ask their mate for a club or two and uh, and play for the week and hopefully they get their clubs back. But we are going to talk with Gabby Ruffles, who'll be teeing up at the US Women's Open Championship this weekend. Welcome back to the show. And with the US Women's Open this weekend, it's a huge week, of course, for women's golf. And we've got one of Australia's five competitors who'll be teeing off at Pine Needles in North Carolina. Gabby Ruffles, great to have you join us. I know it's a night time for you over there and uh, obviously exciting as you lead up to the US Women's Open. How is it at the moment? What's the course looking like? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited for the week. I just got in um, this morning. It's always nice uh, to be playing in Pinehurst. Um, Pine Needles, but I'm, I'm staying in Pinehurst. I have some good memories from Pinehurst. Um, 
so yeah, the course, the course is amazing. It's uh, definitely a U.S. Open feel. Um, the USGA always does such a good job with their course setups, and uh, it's definitely going to be a challenging one. Um, it's a Donald Ross design, same as kind of Pinehurst, um, and it reminds me more of Australian courses mm. um, than you know a typical U.S. course that has thick rough um, and stuff like that. But it's, uh, it's definitely it's definitely going to be a challenge, but definitely looking forward to it. Gabby, how have you been going generally? I know that uh, it must be 18 months as a pro now, something like that. I'm just guessing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's been a little bit tough for you because when you turned pro, you didn't have any status on the LPGA, obviously. You, you played a lot on the LPGA as an amateur. But, um, you know, it, it's been difficult, hasn't it? I, I think that's fair to say so far. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's just a lot of, it's been a lot of learning. Um, you know, I turned pro in February of last year and played on sponsor exemptions. And, you know, now I have status on the EPSA tour, the Symmetra tour. Um, so it's just been so much learning, but I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And I feel like I've, you know, changed as a person as well as a golfer since I turned pro. And I feel like I'm definitely, you know, um, improving and just trying to learn even, um, you know, the off course stuff is so different to me with how you manage, um, you know, travel and accommodation and, um, you have to do kind of everything on your own. So it's just, as I keep saying, it's been a lot of learning, but, um, I'm really enjoying the journey. It's a big learning curve, isn't it, for the for the new pro golfer? And it's not yeah. just about golf. I mean, uh, how have you done that? Who yeah. have you leaned on to help you? Are your parents? Are you living with your parents still, uh, or are you living on your own? Or what what's happening there? Yeah, so I think um, I've just kind of leaned on my team. I have a great team around me. Um, I'm not living with my parents at the moment. I'm living in Orlando, Florida, which is actually where a lot of Australian golfers. Um, that are now based in the U.S. have come to kind of reside, um, which has been great. Kind of feels, you know, a sense of home and mm. a sense of uh, it's nice to have, you know, other golfers around. Like, you know, uh, my brother, which is nice. Um, Ryan, Lucas of course. Herbert, Curtis Luck. Yeah, yeah. Lucas Herbert, Curtis Luck. Um, now Steph Kiriakou is, um, has just joined that you know, golf club. So it's nice. It's, and obviously golf Australia has the base mm-hmm. in Orlando as well. So, um, you know, it definitely has that home feel and, um, yeah, I'm just kind of getting more used to the pro life. Gabby, one thing you've been able to do really well so far is you've performed so well in majors. What is it about majors that gets you up and going? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, obviously it's majors are what, you know, what you dream about and, and what you play for. And I guess I just like, you know, the tough, the tough golf courses. Um, I think I've been able to play really well on those. Um, but I, but I love, I love the majors. I've been fortunate to play, you know, have a couple exemptions into majors when after winning, you know, the USAM and playing as an amateur. And I feel um, gradually, I guess, just more and more comfortable. And I just love the challenge, I guess, of it. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to kind of carry that streak along this week. Gabby, where the listeners that we've got on a podcast, some of them would know of you and some of them are new to the game of golf. And, and I love getting in and, and really delving into the stories of, of everyone. Your story, you are a top tennis player, top junior tennis player. In fact, I think ranked number one in Australia when you were 12 or thereabouts. How was the transition uh, from tennis into golf for you? Yeah, so I transitioned when I was 14. I um, stopped playing tennis. It just got 
uh, way too intense for me. I started homeschooling and I just lost the enjoyment from tennis. And then I wasn't really doing much, um, but obviously had my brother Brian playing, playing golf. And I was just kind of around the golf and then, you know, picked up a golf club at, at 14 um, and then started taking it more seriously at 15. But I think um, having that tennis background and, and playing sport at a high level really helped me when I did decide to, um, take golf more seriously. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a short time, but it's, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been good. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be able to be that talented just to pick up a golf club at, at 14? Uh, Gabby, what's your greatest strength then? What, what was it about the game that you were able to really feel that this was suited for you? Yeah, I think the first time I even played in a tournament, I was so, amazed at how you could you know talk to your playing partners or your opponents and they weren't really necessarily your opponents um you know because you're just it's kind of you against the golf course out there and I really enjoyed that aspect of it um it was a more social and less you know even less brutal less competitive atmosphere than tennis which is kind of a one-on-one format um so I, I really enjoyed the relaxed and social kind of nature of golf um, which I think a lot of people mm. do. And that's, you know, that's one of the great things about golf is that you can go out with a couple of friends and wish each other well. And because um, you're playing against the golf course, not against them. So I think that was probably the biggest thing that drew me to the sport. Is that vibe still there out on tour now? Uh, yeah, it's funny that you asked that. I feel like it's less, it's, it was more like that even in college because you're around a team. Um, but, you know, at a professional level now, now it's kind of your job. Um so I guess people take it a little bit more seriously and it's harder to find, I guess, like true, true good friends out here. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can still walk down the fairways and have a stroll with your caddy and, and, you know, talk to the other playing partners. Um, but that's for sure. So that's definitely, you know, what I've continued to enjoy about golf. How's your form, Gabby? I know that you finished inside the top 20 on the Epson last week, I think in Florida. Um, you've mm-hmm. also you've got uh, Grace Kim there is playing uh, Sarah Camp obviously Minji Lee and uh, Hannah Green have you caught up with any of those guys um, I saw Grace in passing today um, obviously she's been doing really well mm. she won a couple of weeks ago on the Epson tour um, but no I haven't I haven't seen them yet um, I saw Hannah and Minji at the at the last major in, in Palm Springs and caught up with them which was which was awesome. Um, but, yeah, it'll be nice to have – is it five Australians in the field? Yeah. Five, five, yeah. Five. Um, yeah, yeah, five, which is great. So it'll be cool to, you know, catch up with all of them. Well, we're looking forward to watching you and the other four ladies uh, just do the Australia stuff and, and see how well you can go. And uh, hopefully for you, you bet your best finish was tied to 13th in 2020. So see if you can get inside that. Thank you so much, Gabby, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, we wish you all the very best, Gabby, this weekend, of course, alongside the four other Aussies, Hannah, Minji, Sarah and Grace. And if you want to catch all the action from Pine Needles, you can follow golf.org.au or pga.org.au or follow us on the Australian Golf Show and uh, we'll be posting all of the results across those uh, platforms. Looking forward to welcoming also Mark Allen back in the co-host chair next week. We'll catch you then.